you don't have the advantage of knowing what I'm going to say and worshiping through those songs. Uh, in, in some ways, I wish that I could have given you the message and then you could have worshiped because it's such a wonderful commentary on, on what I'm getting ready to say. Uh, well, it is springtime in Memphis and everything is growing. Azaleas, dogwoods, crabgrass, weeds, Some homes and gardens are beautiful. Kathleen and I walk in our neighborhood and some lawns are just immaculate and impeccable. And uh, there was an essay in Wall Street Journal about lawn care. Keith Blanchard wants to achieve a lush, bouncy, picnic magnet of a lawn so appealing that strangers buy boxes of puppies just to photograph them there. Other yards are neglected. They look okay from a distance, but not so great when you get up close. And then, of course, there are those other yards that, frankly, are just a mess. What do you have to do to have a lush, lovely picnic magnet of a lawn? Well, here's some key words for you. Vigilance, diligence, preventative maintenance. What do you have to do to have a yard full of weeds? (laughs) Nothing. Just come to our house. You'll see. Uh, Negligence is a key word for having a yard full of weeds. And here's a little preview quote that you can write down if you want to take notes. Uh, It comes from C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters, number 12. Without the grace of God in Christ, nothing is strong. Without the grace of God in Christ, nothing is strong. You can take that a couple of ways. Well, some of you here this morning don't have yards. You could care less about yards. It's a burden. You have to cut grass to get a little money. Uh, You may not have a vine yard as we're getting ready to look at in our passage this morning, but every single person in here, student, uh, adult, we all have these lives of ours. So this morning, I want to talk about a very common problem and offer a very simple, often overestimated solution. I'm basically making an argument for why we're here right now, doing what we're doing. There are people whose lives have become a joyless jungle of weeds and thorns. We all know people like this. Maybe you've been one of those people. Maybe you are one of those people, all tangled up in blue, like Bob Dylan says in the song. These people wander or have wandered from the way. They ignore or bend the truth for a version that seems perfectly reasonable to them but tragic and ridiculous to clearer minds. They give up the life of joyful, humble service to Christ for, well, something less, something more fulfilling. Like Walker Percy said, you can get all A's and still flunk life. Bystanders wonder what happened. They're often shocked 
but rarely surprised given the circumstances. Do you remember the movie that Richard Linkletter made a couple of years ago called Boyhood, filmed over 12 years, literally actually showing the growth of a young man from a a little boy to, to a college student? What if we could film the lives of people that we all know who have taken that hard right, crashed through the guardrails and gone over the cliff and, and could rewind the tape three months previous to their demise or three years or six years previous? What, what if you could go back and, and rewind and, and review that film of their lives and, and look at it closely like a coach reviews game film and say, oh, do you see the tendency there? Do do you see that attitude that is developing? Do you see how they're beginning to lie to themselves and, and lie to other people? Well, guess what, friends? We all know those people that are in pain, that cause pain, that we pray for, but we're all capable of getting off track Getting lost is as easy as growing weeds. And Lamott says, this is a hard planet and we're a vulnerable species. So one of the soundtrack songs for this message that's way in the back of my mind is by Steve Miller. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. It sounds pretty good with the sound system in here. Uh, For all of us, that is true. We're living these lives of ours, and time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. I want to look with you this morning uh, in the book of Proverbs about a story of a man who saw something that he thought about, and he learns a lesson from it. So it's the book of Proverbs. So it's given to us to give us wisdom about how to live our lives. And primarily, the wisdom that we need to live our lives is the fear of the Lord. And it's difficult in this genre of wisdom literature to connect the dots to Jesus so that we are careful to understand that in Christ, All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found that he is the one who can guide us through this life of ours and keep us on the way, uh, keep us believing the truth and make sure that his life is sustained in us. And I want to try not to lose my own ball in the weeds, but to help us all understand that this book is pointing to Jesus and who he is and what he has done and what he has to say about these lives that we are living. It's chapter 24, Proverbs 24. I hope you have a Bible. There's one in the pew in front of you maybe. Uh, It's pretty easy to find after the book of Psalms, Proverbs chapter 24. It is the final saying in the fourth collection of sayings in the book of Proverbs, and it begins with verse 30. So we're looking here this morning at Proverbs chapter 24, verse 30. Now, you may think about Proverbs, and you you would do so correctly, to think about all these little two-line snippets of wisdom. A wise son brings joy to his parents. A foolish son makes his parents sad, stuff like that. This is different from that. 
This is a beautiful, for those who love literature, it is a carefully crafted poem. For those of you who like poetry or write poetry or read poetry, I call it a wisdom burger because the first verse, uh, verse 30, you can see this in your English Bible. It's, there's two parts to it. The next verse, verse 31, has three parts to it. The middle, the the meat of the wisdom burger has these two lines. Then uh, it is bracketed by another verse with three uh, pieces and a final verse with two pieces. So two pieces, three pieces, middle verse, three pieces, two pieces. It's proportional like that. It's it's beautiful. It's carefully constructed. And it's all about a situation. Proverbs is given by a wise man who wants to pass on wisdom to young people, pass on wisdom to naive people, pass on wisdom to foolish people who are prone to get lost in in this life that they are living. And so we have a situation that this wise person sees and he reflects on it. He thinks about it. He's paying attention. Like Deuteronomy 6 says, everywhere he's going, he's just paying attention and he's looking to see how the truth of God relates to daily life. Waking up, going to bed, going in, coming home, in the house, out of the house. And so in this reflection, he learns a lesson that he passes on to his son and and by extension to us this morning. And so it is in thinking about this little anecdotal poem that he writes and this situation that he talks about that we too can be reminded that we are living this life that is slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. And we have to make decisions about how we live it. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, let's, let's look at this uh, verses 30 to 34. I pass by the field of a sluggard by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. I think about these people who get lost and drift into chaos. These people that we love, these people that we pray for, and I wonder what God would have to say to them. And this is one of the places that I have landed uh, as I pray and think about these people. Uh, In this poem, first of all, there's a person who owns this overgrown, rundown vineyard. Who is this guy that owns this vineyard? Well, he's called a sluggard in verse 30. Proverbs is the only place in the Bible that you hear and learn about a sluggard. 13 times in the book of Proverbs and only in Proverbs do we hear about the sluggard. And since we're in the neighborhood, it's probably not too much to ask of you to turn to chapter 26, which is one of the two 
chapter 6 being the other one. 6 and 26 are the two extended uh, descriptions of the sluggard. And there are a couple of points that I would like for you to see from chapter 26, where there's a riff on who the sluggard is. First of all, I'd look at verse 16. Back to these like two line little proverbs here. 26, 16, there's a verse about the sluggard. And we read here that the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. I don't know who the seven wisest people are in this room this morning, but the sluggard in his own mind is smarter than all of you guys or girls. So all the wisdom that you might give a person who is beginning to wander off course, he doesn't need to listen to you because he's already figured it all out. He's wise in his own eyes. There's this uh, intellectual conceit. Any basketball fans? Uh, anybody watch the final four championship? Did you see the two final four? Did you see the game where the Oklahoma Sooners, Lon Kruger's team plays the Villanova Wildcats? Did you see the Villanova Oklahoma game? Did you see that? Uh, it didn't go so well for one of the teams. Uh, Oklahoma lost by 44 points, 95-51. It was, for those of you who are not basketball fans, the largest, greatest, most humiliating defeat in the history of the final four playoffs. The largest loss in history. Now, the sluggard is wise in his own eyes. Now, if, if we could have all gotten passes and, and gone to wherever that venue was where they played that game and actually gone into the locker room uh, before the game began and just kind of walked around and talked to the Oklahoma players and said, hey guys, you guys ready for the game? You're all pumped up and ready to take on the Wildcats? Yeah, 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 we're all ready to take on the Wildcats. And so kind of like Columbo, we would say, sorry for the reference there for you younger folk, uh, but we would say, uh, is it possible that you guys could lose the game tonight? No, oh, man, we're going to take it. Is it possible that you could lose by the largest margin in the history of the final four? Is that, is that, um, the sluggard is wise in his own eyes. He's self-confident. Uh, the other thing that we learn about the sluggard still in chapter 26 Verse 13 now, verse 13, 26, 13, another verse about the sluggard. The sluggard makes ridiculous excuses, ridiculous. He's wise in his own eyes, so he's always blowing smoke. And this time he says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets, meaning, okay, I, I, I can't get to work at the vineyard today early because I could get eaten by a lion. Now, yes, culturally, uh, that is a plausible, not a completely ridiculous statement. There were lions uh, back then and there. But, but he's, just, he's just making an excuse for not showing up on time. I, I, I can't leave my house. There's a lion in the street. So he's making excuses. This is part of the problem for people who wander off track. They're wise in their own eyes. They don't need any input from you. They don't need any correction from you. And... They're excusing. They're making little compromises. And hey, sorry for this. Uh, when you begin lying to other people, 
pretty soon you're going to be lying to yourself. Okay, I know. Uh, Hey, there is a lion. This guy just hasn't identified the correct lion. Peter says, we have an enemy, the devil, who wanders around, prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour people. Lions are lazy, friends. They pick the weak and the young and the very old and the isolated. That's who lions prey on. So yes, sluggard, there is an enemy. He is a lion, but you've made excuses and have identified in that process of your mental arrogance, the wrong lion. Uh, the second thing we see about the sluggard now, back in chapter 24, uh, in verse uh, 30, the second thing we read about this guy, this vineyard owner, is that he is a man lacking sense. Now, if you were a reader of Hebrew, like Solomon wrote this book, you would see that that word lacking sense is actually the word for heart. Uh, this person's heart is all out of kilter, all out of control. Heart in the Hebrew mind was more than just the muscle that pumps in your chest whose levels of cholesterol you're occasionally worried about and all that. Uh, The heart was the control center of the entire life. The control panel in your software, mission control in Houston, the heart was the thing that controls it all. Now, the problem with the significance of the heart is that Jeremiah the prophet says it's deceitful above all things and desperately sick, not needing physical bypasses or valve replacements, friends, but spiritually speaking, our command center is completely corrupted in Adam. Do you remember that Adam and Eve were in a garden that the Lord planted? Do you remember that God took the man and put him into that garden where there was beauty and all kinds of trees and fruit? And do you remember that God communed with the man and the woman on a regular basis in in deep intimacy? The man and the woman being naked and not ashamed in the presence of a holy God? And do you remember that through the temptation of the devil, the woman disobeyed God by eating of the fruit and that God came to find the man and the woman? And when he came, they were with new eyes, wise in their own eyes. We can make a decision about what to do and what not to do, that that they ran and hid from God who looked for them in the garden. And when God confronted them with their sin, they began to blame other people, make excuses for their sin. Do you remember all of that? And do you remember that God kicked them out of this beautiful garden that he had planted and cursed the ground that Adam was going to have to work and said, hey, Adam, this ground is now going to produce thorns and weeds and you're going to have to work it by the sweat of your brow. That theology is pointed to from this vineyard, this garden that this man uh, had planted. 
And do you know that if you were to study vineyards in the Old Testament, when you came to the book of Psalms, chapter 80, that you would read God referring to his beloved people as a vineyard? And God had carefully cultivated the vineyard, and yet when it was time for the harvest, all that there was there was sour grapes and blight. And do you remember in Isaiah chapter 5 where God sings this love song? I, I loved you. I brought you like a vine out of Egypt and I planted you in this land and I, care, I did everything necessary for you to flourish. But when it came time to bear fruit, because you were wayward, because you were disobedient, there was nothing there And friends, can you look into the New Testament with this image of this rundown, overgrown vineyard and hear your Savior, Jesus, saying, I am the true vine. I am the vineyard. I am the Son of God who pleased and served and performed the Father's work perfectly. I hope you hear Jesus calling all of us to stay connected with him. Do you remember John 15? Abide in me. This text is pointing to those topics. This man was lacking sense. I I mentioned to you that he was lacking a heart, that our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, which is why Solomon in chapter four and verse 23 says, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Pay attention. Vigilance, diligence. Understand how weak and fickle and wicked your heart is. Your heart, my heart, weak, wickle, wicked, fickle. I knew I was going to. It's important, friends, this heart Now, this other picture in the back of my mind as I'm looking at this overgrown vineyard is from the Song of Solomon, chapter four, where the lover says to his beloved, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. And then with great passion and rapture, he goes on to describe this one he loves like a garden, like an orchard full of beautiful blossoms, full of fragrant aromas, and he he longs for this one who has captivated his heart. That's the beautiful side. But here, all we have is an overgrown, weed-filled, run-down vineyard that was neglected by a guy whose heart is somewhere else. Okay, so here's part of the problem. Uh, In the chapter, after the wise man who sees the overground vineyard thinks about it, he he identifies the problem in verses 33 and 34. Uh, I want you to see this because, again, I'm talking to us about a common problem and a very simple solution. Here's the problem. The problem is in two parts. There's two parts to it, even though it's packed beautifully into this verse. Uh, Everything... Uh, Verse 33, do you see the word little, ma'at, repeated three times, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. The guy didn't just walk away from the vineyard forever. He just started sleeping in a little bit. 
He just went home for lunch and, and took a little nap. He just left early at the end of the day and, and had a little rest and slumber. So two things here. The first part is that, that word little, this, this sense of gradual, incremental, harmless, unnoticeable. That's part of the issue here. Somebody said that failure in the Christian life, these people who become this joyless jungle of weeds and thorns, they crash through the guardrails and go over the cliff and we wonder what happened. Failure in the Christian life is rarely a blowout. It's usually a slow leak. It's a little wandering off course. Little lies. So the second song in the back of my mind as a soundtrack for this message is uh, Paul Simon's Slip Slide In Away. Slip sliding away. You know, the nearer your destination, the more you slip sliding away. We're working our jobs, collect our pay, believe we're gliding down the highway when in fact we're slip sliding away. Little by little by little. I mentioned C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters, letter number 12. If you own that book, letter number 12, profound. And the demon coaxing, gently coaxing the, per, the subject of his temptation away from God through this uneasiness, this, this sense of vague wrongdoing that makes this person not want to run to his sympathetic high priest, but to keep his distance like Adam and Eve in a garden. Uh, the, the demon says this, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts so that you really have no idea where you really are. The second part of the problem is this word that's repeated. It's not the same word, but it's this idea of sleep, slumber, folding of the hands to rest, this gradual suspension of consciousness this gentle relaxing of vigilance, this growing lack of awareness of what's really happening. Sleep, slumber, rest. Somebody refers to people who get lost, literally lost out in the wilderness or out in the ocean or in the mountains or whatever. He talks about the psychology of oblivion. Lost people become totally disoriented. At first, they think they know where they are, but they really don't. And then when they go further and further doing what makes sense to them, eventually they become completely disoriented. If you could somehow parachute into a literal wilderness, Rocky Mountain National Park, back in the back country, steep canyons. If you could parachute in, and here's a guy who's been separated from his group, and he's been like, 
five or six days with no food, no fire. He's cold. He's hungry. He's fallen down ravines. He has no idea where he is. And if you could say to that guy, are you lost? Yes. Yes, I'm lost. I have no idea. Well, what are you going to do about it? And if the guy told you what he was going to do about it, you would say, that's the dumbest thing you could possibly ever come up with. That makes no sense at all. And this guy that has studied and talked to all these people who have been lost, say they tell you the most preposterous things because they've literally lost their minds. You know those people who get lost in the weeds? Do you know those, those people that burst through the guardrails and go over the cliff? When they begin talking to you about what they've got to do, what they're going to do, you're thinking to yourself, are you crazy? And the answer is yes. Stress, sin, guilt, emotion, they lose their minds. A little sleep, a little slumber. I'm checking out of reality. The same guy that wrote that book about being lost said, people don't admit it when they're lost. It's hard to say, I've messed up. I don't have any idea what's going on. I, I'm, out of my, I'm out of my element. I'm out of control. I'm over my head. And people rarely know where they really are. And very few people ever backtrack. Do you remember Jesus in the book of Revelation says, you, you, you guys have wandered away. I urge you to repent and return and do the things you did at first. You know, love your wife. Show up with the community. Be vulnerable. Be accountable. All that stuff, do that. Dallas Willard begins his terrific book on the Sermon on the Mount called Divine Conspiracy by this story saying a pilot was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter plane. She turned the controls for what she thought was a steep ascent and flew straight into the ground. She was unaware that she had been flying upside down. One of the scarier components of sin, says Paul Tripp, is its deceitfulness. Sin blinds. We tend to be blind to our own sin. Spiritually blind people tend to be blind to their blindness, asleep, disoriented. Rosaria Butterfield reflects on her life in sin and says, Christians over time tend not to see their sin as sin at all. One very difficult aspect about sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. It feels like life, sleep, slumber. That's the problem. Gradually, falling asleep, wandering off the path. Here are the consequences in verse 34. The consequences are that little sleep, that gradual wandering, poverty will come upon you like a robber. Robbers are not gentle. Hey, may I please have your money? And then, you know, no, they mug you. They smack you down. Poverty will come like a robber and want like an armed man mugged by the thief who comes to kill and steal and destroy. 
That guy that wrote that book about people who get lost said, people have no idea of the scale and the power of the things that they engage themselves in. No idea how big that forest is. No idea how fast you could begin going if you lose your footing and fall down this mountain. Uh, No idea of the power of the ocean that you're so blithely wandering out to. He he tells a story himself of flying to the island of Kauai. I don't know if you've ever been to Kauai. He said he went to Lydgate Beach. On the approach, he saw all these beautiful waves crashing into the Lydgate Beach, and he couldn't wait to go out there body surfing. He grew up in Houston. He'd been body surfing on Padre Island and, and a lot of other places. He, he loved that. He couldn't wait to go out there. So checks into the hotel, walking out to the water to go body surfing, and he just happens by the lifeguard tower and says, hey, how's the swimming today? And the guy in the life guard tower comes down and he stands beside him and he's just kind of looking out there at the, at the waves crashing in. And, and he, he says, you see that flat area over there uh, where, where the rocks are behind there and the waves are crashing into the, those rocks? He says, there's a bunch of families over there and they're throwing their kids up and they're, they're just having a blast. He says, you, sh- you should probably swim over there in that flat water. The guy's like, dude, I want to go win, uh, uh, body surfing. I want to go out there. He says, well, you probably shouldn't go further than 10 yards off the beach because if you go further than 10 yards, the riptide is going to pull you out and carry you around behind those rocks over there where those waves are crashing. And those crashing waves are going to pound your body to death on those rocks. So you should probably either just stay in that flat, calm area or not further than 10 yards off the beach. And the author says, I had no idea. Had I not stopped and talked to that guy, I would have blithely run out there and been washed away. Hawaii is a lot different from Houston. Waves are coming from thousands of miles. Uh, Two miles off the shore, it's four miles deep. It's a very different environment. This guy had no idea of the power that he was stepping into. Like your 16-year-old who drives your car. Like the junior high student who goes to the party on Friday night. They said they were going somewhere else, but they went over here to this party with all these older students, and they have no idea of the power of being cool and conforming uh, to the group. The, The power of a young dad working hard to make a living or a tired, stressed-out mother of teens, or a lonely, empty nester. Somebody said that in the beginning, sin is like the thread of a spider's web, but in the end, it becomes like the cable of a ship. The guy learns his lesson. He realized that it would, could happen to him. He's paying attention. He's understanding his vulnerability. So friends, if a little negligence can ruin you, as it did the sluggard with the vineyard, a little diligence and vigilance can restore you. The problem was the negligence of a lazy sluggard. The solution is vigilance and diligence and persistence. We have to pay attention. We have to stay awake. How do we do this? How do we stay awake? How how, how do we maintain the diligence that we need? Is it mind over matter? 
Is it willpower? Do we just try harder? No, it isn't. It's not just following our own hearts, just doing what feels right. After all, God wants me happy. Doesn't he want me happy? No, it's not that. God wants us to be holy. And so he gives us his grace. How does he give it to us? Does he give it to us automatically? Do we just show up and check off an attendance box and, and we got our you know, fix for the week? No, it doesn't happen that way, friends. God has given us means of grace. There are some things that we have to do ourselves. You can pay a guy to maintain your, your yard and have a beautiful yard, but you can't pay somebody else to maintain your own heart and to cultivate a connection with Jesus Christ. You have to do that yourself. Well, how do I do it? Like this. Hear the word. Read the word. Let God speak into your mind and your life and show you who you really are and who he really is and where you really are, not where you think you are. And you talk to him about all of these things that crush you and discourage you, and make you think you're not good enough. You tell him all that through prayer. And then you show up here, and in grace groups, and Sunday school classes, and and small groups, and you let yourself be vulnerable, and you pay attention to older people who have walked further down the path, so, so who can speak into your life. And we all underestimate that stuff. It's just Bible reading. It's just prayer. They talk about it all the time. It's so hard. Faith, uh, worship, church, oh, uh. But I want you to make the connection between these things that we're doing and this life that keeps slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. And above all of this, I want you to know that you have a Savior who wore a crown of thorns who started in the wilderness, not in a garden, but in the wilderness for 40 days, resisting the temptations of the devil, the lion that was trying to devour him. And this savior of ours, Jesus Christ, is a prophet. He's got the wisdom. It's all found in him. So we have to listen to him and pay attention. But he's also a priest, a high priest, a priest that by his own blood has made atonement, has covered all of your sins and removed them as far as the east is from the west and offers grace and mercy and forgiveness. And when you get messed up, his heart towards you is kind and good. And he's a king that has only has the power to keep this wayward, fickle, wicked heart under control. Negligence can ruin you, but the grace of God in Christ can restore you. Connection to Jesus through constant use of God's means of grace makes for better homes and gardens and people who stay found instead of being lost. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, every bit of it, Lord, even the part that's hard to connect to your son, Jesus Christ, we see him here in Proverbs as a wise prophet and a gracious priest and a sovereign, powerful, all-sufficient king. 
Lord Jesus, we hear your word to abide in me so that we can bear fruit. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to fear your name. And I ask that you would help us understand that we have captivated your heart and that your love for us is eternal. Motivate us to respond, to dive into these means of grace that we might be like your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.